Yeah, that was pretty awesome, huh? I told you, every once in a while we get Holy Roller up in here, and this was one of those, this was one of those nights. You just never know. You just never know. Um, so thank you for being here. If you're visiting, again, welcome. We're glad you're here. It's a good night to be here. Uh, just real quick, before I even get started, I want to mention you teachers. First of all, I know you're going back to school this week, so we're all going to be praying for you, right? Everybody's going to be praying for these teachers this week. So be praying for the teachers as they go back to school, and be praying for these students this week as they all head back to school. We've been in a series, which is a little different than we normally do. I do uh, typically preach through the Bible, kind of chapter by chapter, verse by verse, but we took the summer to answer some difficult questions, and we've covered a lot of topics, but the difficult question tonight, and I heard this a lot, especially when I was a new Christian, what does it mean to be born again, or how do I know that I've been born again? And then the question is, well, what happens to those who haven't been born again, and what is my obligation to those people? Now, the most popular and probably most loved verse in all of Scripture and probably the most memorized verse in all of Scripture is John 3.16. I guarantee at the concert we were at last week, somebody had probably a John 3.16 sign held up, and it's for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should, have, uh, should not perish but have eternal life. That was written, it was stated by Jesus, but it was written out by John. He was a disciple of Jesus, and as John neared the end of his life, he sat down and he wrote about his personal experiences with Jesus, and he kind of reflected upon that time and what he learned from his time with Jesus. And so to work through our difficult question tonight, I want to look at not just the Hobby Lobby memory verse that we all know, but I want to look at all the verses around that story. And so if you have a Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 3. Tonight I'm using the NIV translation, and we just start right at the beginning in verse 1. It says, uh, John chapter 3, verse 1, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And so John begins a story, and he kind of tees it up. We've got a name. So we know the name of the person we're talking about, Nicodemus. And we didn't just get a name, we got his resume. And so within the resume in this first verse, we know, A, that he's a Pharisee. That means, for you social media savvy people, he was an influencer in, in the 2,000 years ago. And so his power, though, his influence comes from his knowledge of Scripture. He's able to um, discern and interpret Scripture. That's what kind of gives him his, his influence over society. On top of that, it tells tells us uh, he's a member of the ruling council. That means he's probably older. So now we've learned that Nicodemus is a ruler. He's older because you don't climb to the high point unless you're an older person. Likely, um, commentators tell us he was wealthy. He was probably very educated, which means he probably had some intellect. Plenty of stories throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about people who don't have it all together. You got the woman at the well, you have prostitutes, tax collectors, those disciples who never seem to get it right, constantly hearing about the poor and the powerless, but that's not Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a guy that has his stuff together. He's devout, he's faithful, he's above reproach, he's respectable, and he's part of the in crowd. So that's what we know about this guy, Nicodemus. Verse 2, it says, He came to Jesus at night. We'll call him Nick at night. And he said, Rabbi. Rabbi is the same title that the disciples gave to Jesus. It just means teacher, but it really indicates that it's a sign of respect. It says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Nicodemus is close. Jesus isn't just from God. He actually is God. It says, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. 
And so here's Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus at night. He says, Jesus, you're young. You're uneducated. You don't have all the credentials that we have. But the stuff we've been hearing you do, it's, it's pretty amazing. So he says, we want to know more. Who is this we that they talk about? Well, we is probably the religious establishment. And so I see this like a college recruitment visit to a a five-star recruit. And so he's gone out and Jesus is that five-star recruit that's now on everybody's radar. Everybody wants Jesus for their team. They're out there to offer him a scholarship to join Team Pharisee. And Jesus knows what he's doing and he just interrupts him mid-sentence. He says, very truly, I tell you, time we see that in scripture, remember it's, it's listen up. This is really important what I'm about to say. It says, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Born again. There's a lot of stigma in our society with those two words. We think of the of course, born-again Christian, and I feel like I almost need to say it in like a southern kind of country accent, you know, born-again Christian. It's, it's that, that kind of Ned Flanders personality. It's a simpleton. They're naive. That's how media would want to betray a born-again Christian. When I think about being born again, my mind goes to the Billy Graham crusades. I just watched a documentary on PBS about those crusades and his life. Those crusades, it was basically he would go to a town and people would show up and they would listen to him speak And they have probably hit rock bottom. They'd ruined their life. Things weren't going well. They're looking for something, anything to cling to. And they go to this this sermon, and they hear him speak, and they have this emotional experience, which is a good thing, and that becomes then the catalyst for them to clean up their lives. That's what it means to be born again, we think. But that's, again, not Nicodemus. He's not hit rock bottom. He's at the top of the rock. And so what does it mean to be born again? doesn't mean I've got my life now back on track. I finally stopped doing all those things that my mama told me to stop doing. doesn't mean that I finally know my Bible. See, again, Nicodemus already has all of that. 613 laws in the Old Testament. He at least attempts to follow them all. Not only does he follow the laws, he polices the laws. He prays, he tithes, he teaches. It's very spiritual. Today we look at him, we see there's a strong Christian man. We need to make him an elder, maybe even a pastor. And Jesus interrupts him mid-sentence, and he just looks him straight in the eye. He says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Verse 4, Nicodemus responds, how can someone be born when they are old? Logical question. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. So Nick, he's like, I hear you, Jesus, but... I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know how I'm going to explain this to my mother. It's going to be awkward. Verse 5, Jesus answers, Very truly I tell you, listen up, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Jesus essentially repeats the same phrase, but this time he adds the words water and spirit. There's a lot of debate on what he meant with those two words. You can buy a lot of really big, fat, thick books and read all about that if you want. But I think Jesus addresses it best with these next words. Verse 6, he says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. And so what he's saying is a man is, is born, our first birth, our water birth by the flesh. That's our earthly birth. And then he says a man who is reborn has a spiritual birth, produced not by the flesh, not by humanity, but by the spirit of God. Verse 7, he says, you 
That's the singular version of you. So he's talking to Nicodemus. You, Nicodemus, should not be surprised at my saying you, that's plural, all people must be born again. And he says this, it sounds so much like Jesus. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. We know a little bit about powerful wind here in southwest Florida, right? (laughs) Wind is why your home insurance is so expensive. Uh, Contrary to what a lot of people think, it's not so that your insurance agent can get rich. It's about the wind. We know the wind is powerful. It's unpredictable. It goes where it wants to go. It goes when it wants to go. It goes how it wants to go. And Jesus says the Holy Spirit who gives us rebirth is like that. Powerful. Free to go where he wants to go. Free to do what he pleases. He's beyond our understanding. And most importantly, he's outside of our control. Jesus, when he teaches, he always teaches to the audience that he's talking to. And so he knows that Nicodemus knows scripture. And so Jesus uses what Ezekiel knows. He's quoting Ezekiel, or what Nicodemus knows. He's quoting Ezekiel 37. That's that last song that we sang this week. And the prophet speaks out as as commanded by God. And the wind, which is the spirit, shows up. And there's these dead, dry bones laying everywhere. And he breathes and brings these bones to life. And so, verse 9, Nicodemus asks, how can this be? Still a little confused. Jesus responds, you are Israel's teacher. And you do not understand these things? Listen to a podcast on the way to Miami this week. Uh, Stuff You Should Know podcast, good one if you want to find some, you know, stupid knowledge that we probably don't need. But we listened to one going over on sarcasm. And they were talking about how far back in history you can go and still find sarcasm. And they had old literature and stuff they could find it. And they were debating on whether or not you could find sarcasm in the Bible. And the conclusion they came to is they said Ecclesiastes, that obviously is some kind of sarcasm happening in that book. I think right here Jesus is totally being sarcastic in the most nonsensical way that you could possibly be. He says, Nick, buddy, Israel's teacher, did you miss the day in Bible college that they taught the Bible? Very sarcastic. Verse 11, he says, Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But you still, but still you people do not accept our testimony. Again, he's saying, Nick, you, you memorize the Torah word for word, yet you do not recognize the hero of the story standing right in front of you. Verse 12, he says, I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Important line, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Last week, we talked about Matthew 25, 40, the sheep and the goats, and we talked about that kind of works-based mentality and why it falls flat and why it doesn't work. Nicodemus has been operating his entire life in that sort of works-based ascend-to-God mentality. It's that mentality that can make you really anxious, like, have I done enough? And we know we can never do enough. Have I lived well enough when we know we're not really living all that well? Or we go the opposite way. It makes us really arrogant. I'm the goat. I'm the greatest of all time. Why isn't everyone else as good as me? Jesus just opened the door, though, to a new way of thinking, not marked by ascending up to God, but instead God now descending to us. Jesus descends from heaven. That's what he says. Heaven's pretty awesome. There's no sin, there's no death, there's no evil. He's worshiped day and night, holy, holy, holy. And he descends from that down 
to earth, which is not always so awesome. There is sin, there is death, there is evil, where people would yell, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And yet he descended from heaven for us. That's what Jesus is trying to convey to Nicodemus. It's not, hey man, you've done a great job, great work, you're almost there. You've done so well, let's go ahead and move you right up to the front of the line. It's not what Jesus says. He says, Nicodemus, you got to go back to the beginning. Nothing you've done has moved you any more closer to being a citizen of heaven. Nothing. You're no further along than the pimps. You're no further along than the nasty people, the guy who cheated on his wife, your neighbor who gives you the stank eye. You're no better off. You're no closer to heaven than any of those people. And that can be hard to hear when you think you've earned God's favor, that you are now equal to the worst sinners you can think of. Mentioned the Green Day concert that we went to last weekend. And we bought the tickets two weeks ago pre-COVID, and so we've been excited about this concert for a long time. I think I bought them, and I couldn't remember, but as my own birthday present, because I had a birthday yesterday, and so I think it was birthday present to myself, and we finally got to go. And because of that, I paid extra for the tickets. I wanted good seats. And they were VIP seats. They were on the floor, like the sixth row behind the, the mosh pit, which we didn't want to be in the mosh pit, but, but they were good seats. I paid extra for those seats. And all around me, there were people who bought the cheaper regular seats just walking right in, and I had to stand in a big long line because apparently these fancy expensive seats you needed a wristband for and the line was a mile long to get the wristband. And so I missed the opening band of the concert. I'm getting frustrated. I'm like, these people are just going in. But I rationalize it. I'm like, yeah, but, but they got bad seats. When I get in, I'm going to have the better seats. And then as we're standing there in line, some lady just comes up and grabs a bunch of people behind us and said, hey, we're going we're gonna to just move you on up to the front. Now I was mad. That's not fair. I deserve to be there. I'm owed the front of the line. I paid for this tickets. And so Jesus tells us, and he tells this religious elitist that has that line of thinking, he says, ah, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, they're going to get to heaven before you. And we wonder what got Jesus killed. Chad Bird uh, he's a writer that I, I follow on Facebook. He said this week, no matter where you think you stand on the ladder of virtue, we're all lying face first in the bloody dirt at the foot of the cross. That's where we're at. That's what Jesus is trying to help Nicodemus understand. And he gives him another Old Testament story. He says, verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So Jesus now is pointing Nicodemus back to the book of Numbers. There's a story, and the children are out in the wilderness, and they've been bitten by snakes, and they're all sick, and they're dying, and they have no hope. God tells Moses to put a bronze serpent up on top of a stick, which sounds really kind of silly, but everyone who looks up upon that bronze serpent will be instantly healed and saved. It takes a while for Nicodemus to process that, we think. He's not going to have one of those immediate, born-again, Billy Graham kind of experiences. It's not going to be emotional. It's probably going to be slow and gradual and methodical. There's going to be thinking involved. There's going to be study involved. He's going to have to process and come to terms with what Jesus is teaching about being born again. And I mention that because I want you to know that not every born-again experience is the same. Yes, some people have that big aha moment, and they come to Christ, and it just all comes together 
together and our life is transformed. And some of us, and I say us because that's me, it takes years and years and years of just thinking about it and processing it before we finally commit our lives to Christ and are born again. Now, most do believe that Nicodemus does actually figure it out. Later on in John's gospel, we see him defending Jesus before the other religious leaders. He's the one who wraps the dead body of Jesus, which is normally the work of women and certainly not something that someone of his stature would do. But somewhere along the way, it is believed that it finally clicks for Nicodemus, that the bronze serpent is a type of Christ that we've all been bitten by a snake, we've been bitten by Satan, that we all need to be healed from his bite, his sin, that we can't save ourselves, that we're all but dead, but if we look up to the one that can heal us, we will be saved, not by our works, but purely by grace alone. And that brings us to John 3.16, for God so loved the world. The world, not a people group, not a skin color, not people who only struggle with that sin, but not that sin. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. There are two and only two end results to life on earth. Eternal life, those who are born again, and perishing, those who are not. Jesus doesn't hold back. He doesn't soften the blow. He gives the ultimate reality. Some will have life and some will die. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Verse 18, whoever, which is inclusive, believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. The most important decision we all will ever make in our life. It's not the job that you're going to take or the career you're going to have or where you go to college or even who you're going to marry or even that decision that's got you so stressed out that you're trying to figure out right now. The most important decision is the difficult question, what do I believe about Jesus? Was he a teacher? Was he a good guy? Is he a good example? Is he some fictional character that we learn about? Or is he the savior of humanity? Difficult question. How do I know if I've been born again? Well, if that's what it takes to not go to hell, how do I know that I made it through those pearly gates? Karen, last week after the sermon, reminded me that um, there was a time in her life where, you know, she kind of did have that works-based mentality, and it just kind of clicked for her. And one of the things that helped click was um, changing from getting heaven, being the purpose of life, to getting Jesus, That it's not about getting something from God, it's about actually getting God. And so she texted me this week because I was asking her about that, and I'm going to read it to you. She says, I think the reason a lot of marriages fail is because they want the wrong things in marriage. They want security or protection, or they want to solve their loneliness rather than wanting the person. That's why I've always said I'd rather live in a trailer with you than for you to be gone all the time so we could have a nice house. That's what I mean when people missing Jesus because they are so focused on heaven. Heaven isn't too heavenly without Jesus, just like marriage wouldn't be much of a prize for me without you. And that was really sweet and nice of her to send to. It's my birthday this week, so she had to be nice. (laughs) Don't devote your life to Jesus because you're scared of death. Don't devote your life to Jesus because you don't want to go to hell or because you want the biggest mansion in heaven. Come to Jesus because he is good. And so again, our question, how do I know I'm good. How do I know I've been reborn? And some of the answers I've heard over the years that I've been a Christian is, well, have you surrendered everything to Jesus? 
Or I've heard, have you put all of your hope into Jesus? Or are you a fully devoted follower of Jesus? But if we were to answer those questions honestly, honestly, our answer would be a resounding no. And if you don't believe me, I will gladly take this week off of work and follow you around and point out all the ways that you fall short. I say that all the time. No one has yet to take me up on that offer, but I would gladly do it. How do I know I've been born again? Answer the question, Brian. That's what you're saying. What part does a baby play in their birth? Think about that. What part does the baby play in their birth? Very little, right? I mean, the baby's just there. It's the mother's labor. It's the mother's pain. It's the mother's suffering. It's her anguish. And so then being born again isn't something we do. It's something we receive. Again, I'll ask, how do I know if I've been born again? How do we know that a baby has been physically born? How do we know they've safely made it through a physical birth? That's what they do when they come out. That's the sound, believe it or not, the doctors are listening for. That's the sound the nervous parents are waiting for. That's when we know the birth of the baby is complete and the baby is alive. The baby cries and then keeps doing that for like four years after that. But the baby cries. How do I know I've been born again? Have you cried to Jesus? Jesus, I've tried. I can't save myself. I sin. I do stuff that hurts people. Help me. Jesus, modern science has come a long way, but they can't save me. My only hope is you. And so in desperation, you turn your eyes upward and you cry, help me, save me, fight for me. Wah, wah, wah. And in that moment, you're alive. You've been born again. Yeah, you'll notice a shift. Your priorities will change. You'll have joy on some dark days. You'll have patience when you didn't think you could have it. You might even be a little kinder and gentler. And so life will begin to transform and sanctify, but it all begins with a cry. Help me, Jesus. I can't save myself. It's a simple presentation of the gospel, the good news. And so now the question becomes, what's my obligation to share that news? Here's some statistics. I think uh, LifeWay Research, I found this week, had these. 80% of those who attend church one or more times per month believe they have a responsibility to share their faith. 80% believe they have a responsibility to share their faith. Despite this conviction, 61% have never told another person how to be born again. Survey also asks how many times they've invited an unchurched person to attend church with them. 48%, almost half, responded never. 20% say they never pray for the spiritual status of others. Those they know who are not saved, they don't even pray for them. 50% of millennial Christians now say it's wrong to evangelize. Keep it to yourself. This is an oldie but goodie, Penn Gillette. This is going back to 2009. First time I was ever teaching a, a, a small group in my house, and this video came out, and I remember using it in it, and I thought of it this week. Um, uh, Penn Gillette, he's the talking one of, of Penn and Teller. We saw them in Vegas a while back. At the end of their shows, they kind of come down front, and they let the audience members come up and talk to them and meet them and, you know, tell them how great the show was or whatever. And a guy comes up, 
It's very nice. He's very complimentary of the show. And he says to Penn, he says, hey, man, I'm not insane. I'm I'm a businessman, (laughs) as if that makes him not insane. And he says, I wanted you to have this. And he hands him one of those little Gideon Bibles, you know, the Psalms in the New Testament or or whatever is in those. He hands him this little Gideon Bible, and it's got a handwritten note inside just sharing the gospel, his phone number, and an email address, which I thought was, was quite nice. And this impacted Penn Gillette, and he went on YouTube, and he just kind of vlogged about it. He says, if you believe, this is Penn talking, that there is a heaven and a hell, remember he's an atheist, and that people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not share? He goes on, How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Talk about a difficult question. And he asks it, not me. Here's what I think. I think most non-Christians haven't actually ever rejected the gospel. I think most non-Christians have never heard the gospel. They've never heard about the ascension, or they've only heard about the ascension to God, the moralism, the work-based religion. But they've never heard about the real thing that I shared with you tonight. Further evidence, Karen and I were out fishing this week, and we listened to Pop Rocks on XM Radio, and they always play the same song over and over. They love it. It's Pearl Jam Last Kiss. It's a cover song from the 1950s. If you've never heard it, super depressing song. A guy loses his girl in a car wreck, and then they share this one last kiss, and then he sings the chorus. Peyton, if you can play it. This is the praise, make a dead man walk again. Open the grave, I'm coming now. I'm gonna live, gonna live again. Catch that, she's gone to heaven, so I got to be good, so I can see my baby when I leave this world. That's what most people think that it means to be a Christian got to be good so I can make it to heaven. That's what Christianity is all about. I hope if you've been here any length of time, that's not what you think. And so because of that, you you can't share the gospel. You can't share the good news, first of all, if you don't grasp the good news. And so that's why you hear the gospel here so frequently. That it's not hoping that you're good enough. It's not trying to balance out the scale of sin and good deeds. That 2,000 years ago, heaven came to earth as a person in Jesus. He lived the perfect life. He died the death we deserved. Three days later, he rose from death. And those who believe this message are saved and get to spend eternity with that person. It's pretty basic. You don't need a seminary degree to grasp that. You don't even need to be a Christian for more than about five minutes to grasp the gospel. You don't have to take some big geographical leap of faith to share that message. Just slow and steady determination to love, literally love our literal neighbors in the mundane and messy moments of life. And so to share the gospel, a couple of things. You don't need a lot of ammunition. We're not trying to kill an enemy. We're trying to love a neighbor. And I found most of the time interest in the gospel comes not by force, but by fascination, showing that God really is love allowing people to see the fruit that God is blessing us with, things like peace and patience and kindness in our lives. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we all know it says, doesn't matter how eloquently you speak, if you do not have love, you're nothing but a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, you're just noise if you do not have love. And people aren't going to listen unless they know that you care about them and that you love them. J.I. Packer, in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, he says there are, in fact, two motives that should spur us constantly to evangelize. The first is love for God and concern for His glory. The second is love for man and concern for His welfare. So another difficult question, then, we ought to ask all of ourselves is, why don't I share the gospel? We all have the excuses. I don't have the spiritual gift. Okay, fair enough. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're not all that persuasive. That, that could be very well true. Or maybe you say you're shy or you're an introvert or you're not so good with them, their words. All that may be true, but can we just be honest? We're at church. The real reason we don't share is fear. It's just fear. John 15, Jesus says, if we love him, we'll obey his commands. Matthew 28, he gives a command, go and make disciples. But fear holds us back. And I, I get it. I'm in the same boat. I, I can preach here the gospel all day long standing on this stage but it's sure a lot tougher out there. I've got fear, just like you, of rejection, of insult, of embarrassment, of failure. I fear, man. I fear I'm going to make God look bad because I say something stupid. And so my purpose here tonight, in the second half of the sermon, wasn't to come in and lay a guilt trip on everybody that you need to be out sharing the gospel more. Because guilt is never a proper motivator. If you're sharing the gospel to remove your own guilt, to feel better about yourself, your focus will be on the wrong person. It'll be on yourself and not the message and the person you're sharing with. So I want to encourage you tonight. If you wait for the fear that you have to evaporate before you're willing to share your faith, you will never share your faith because that fear never goes away. Just continue kicking the can down the road, waiting for another day when you won't have that fear and you'll be ready to do it and that day will never come. A lot of us in this church particularly did not grow up in Christian homes. We were not church members and born again our whole lives. And so I know a lot of us here today wonder where would I be today if someone had never shared that good news with me or if someone in my case had not dragged me to a church so that I could hear that good news preached. One more thing, evangelism is not a sales pitch. I know when I first became a Christian, and I'm in sales, and so that's how my brain works, I'm like, why don't they teach a class about how to sell the gospel, how to convert, you know, step one, step two through ten, this is how you do it, and how to overcome objections and all that stuff. And yeah, there is stuff we should learn as Christians, and we need to practice engaging conversation with other people and keeping eye contact, and yes, we need to know our product. We need to know Jesus and a little bit about him, and we need to ask questions so that it kind of draws people out of their shells and leads towards these kind of conversations. Um, everyone you encounter, they have a ver vision in their head of what a good life looks like. Start with that question. What does a good life look like to you, and how's that worked out for you, and how are you moving along to that and begin that conversation? But the gospel is not a product to be sold Evangelism is not a sales presentation. You don't need to use PowerPoint. You don't have to ABC. You know what ABC is? The salespeople in the room do. You don't have to always be closing. 
don't have to be closing people all the time. You can just share wisdom from Proverbs that has impacted your life, or you can share your story and how Jesus has made a difference in your life, or you can use your life to draw out curiosity and fascination so people ask you questions, or you can pay attention to those little mundane opportunities that God drops in your lap every day to share. One of my favorite gospel sharing moments I shared a few months back is I got an excommunication letter from the Mormon church. They were finally kicking me out. I grew up in that religion. They'd had enough. They said, you're out. We heard you're preaching a false gospel somewhere else. So they kicked me out and they sent me this letter and my local bishop sent it to me. I'd never met him before. He sends me this letter and says, hey, sorry, you're out. You need to either come to church or you need to to resign. You're excommunicated. We're going to kick you out. And so I just responded. I like to write a lot. So I responded with about a four-page letter with the gospel. Well, I don't know, a year went by, Karen, a year and a half went by, and I got an email from him saying he'd left the Mormon church He was attending a Christian church. He had moved to Tennessee. He was working his way towards accepting Christ. And when I shared the story last time, that's where he was, and I ended it. Got an email from him about two weeks ago. He has accepted Christ, and the rest of his family is beginning to make that movement that direction. And I'm not (laughs) saying that to brag on myself. That was just God using something in my life where I had an opportunity, and I took advantage of it and not in fear and shared the gospel. Because I had the fear. My parents were going to see that letter. They're still Mormon. My family was going to see that letter. So um, anyway... Don't be afraid. Let let God use you. Colossians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5 says, And pray for that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Jesus says we can't control the wind. It blows where it wants to blow. It moves where it wants to move. It's our job to speak to those dead, dry bones. But it's not our job to give them life. That's God's God, God's job. And so I just want to encourage you, there does come a point where we just need to start talking, let the fear go to the wayside, and then just let it go. Just trust God with the results because it is not on you to convert anybody that is upon God. John 16, verse 21 says, A woman giving birth to a child has pain. You ladies know that, right? Because her time has come. But when her baby is born... She forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Why does Jesus share that little note? On the cross, in that hour, Jesus gives birth to eternal life. There's anguish, there's pain, there's sorrow, suffering. But when a child joins the family of God, he's saying he forgets that anguish because of the joy of seeing our rebirth. And so I'd be remiss tonight if I didn't say, if you've never cried out to Jesus, we want to give you that opportunity tonight. And I thought about that this week. How much hate, how much would I have to hate you to not give you that opportunity tonight? So we want to give you that opportunity tonight. You don't have to walk down front. We're not that kind of church. You don't have to even raise your hand. All you got to do when we sing this last song, just cry out as we sing, Jesus, I can't save myself. My only hope is you, wah, wah, wah. And if you've never, or if you have cried out before, I want you to have the assurance and know that you are born again, regardless of how life is going right now. But if life isn't going so great, you can't be born a third time. There's only two, your first water birth and your spirit birth, the end. But you can still cry to your father, wah, help me, God. So I'm going to ask the band to come up. And as they do, just a reminder, the gospel is good news. 
Good news. On the cross, Jesus waged a war, and he came out victorious. That's the good news. Victorious over sin, victorious over death. He won. He defeated darkness. But if there is a winner in anything in life, we've learned this from the Olympics this week, if there's a winner, that means there has to also be losers. And so when Jesus won, gave us rebirth, self-centeredness lost. The I'll do whatever I damn well please approach to life, lost. Satan and his minions, they lost. And all who lost, every single one of them is a sore loser. But wonderful and liberating as it is with the gospel, it is a message that will be violently opposed by those who have lost. That's why we need to do this every week. We need each other. We need to be a community. We need to be in prayer to God. We need to spend time in His Word, listening to His Word, reading about His Word, hearing preachers preach His Word. We need to hear over and over that God did not come into the world to condemn it, but He came to save it. And so won't you stand? Let's bravely proclaim that as we sing tonight. Let's go home and proclaim it from the rooftops, the internet, our front porches, our cubicles, our dining room tables. Let's all cry out to Jesus together tonight. Hey, again, just thank you for being here tonight and being a part of this service. Say hello to a neighbor as you're leaving tonight. Grab somebody, take them to dinner. Uh, I will just mention next week, uh, I'm on, right? Our five-year anniversary is next week. We're going to celebrate a little bit. So we're going to sing some songs. We're going to have some teaching. We're going to just share a little bit of the history and what's happening and stories and all that. We're going to sing a few more songs, probably the normal and kind of just one of those services where it's songs and teaching and everything all. I love those kind of services. Everything just wrapped together. Uh, So that'll be next week. And it also means that your kids will be in here with you. Don't stay home because your kids have got to be in church with you. It'll be a good start. They'll really enjoy it too. And we want them to be a part of that celebration. So that is next week. And we'll conclude our difficult questions. Uh, I don't know what question it's going to be, but probably something like, why do I need a church? That's probably going to be the question next week. Or why in the world would we plant a church? That's the question I ask myself from time to time. Uh, And then two weeks from now, I want to remind you and mention again, and Peyton, I think I have a slide. We're going to do something completely different. And we're going to try community groups on a Saturday night, and we're just kind of dividing people out, uh, members of the church, in the four different categories based on your season of life, and going to have you, instead of meeting here, uh, meet with each other in homes. And the information for all that is out in the lobby. Next week, we'll definitely give all the details, addresses, and everything, and we'll have it up on the Facebook page and so forth this week. And we really want this to be a big thing because we think friendship and community is just such a big part of, of who we are as a church, and it's what's going to push us through life and be refuge for each other and all of that. So I want to mention that that's coming in two weeks and we'll continue with the information and details on that. Thank you for being here. If you have the opportunity this week, you're going to be afraid to share the gospel. I know because I'm there every single time and that fear will be there. Don't just kick the can down the road. Start talking. Let God do the rest. God bless you. Love you all. See you next week.